Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Love Doctor Podcast, research-informed advice that can lubricate any conversation about sex. My name is Dr. Leah Tidy, and I'm glad to have you here. Today on the show, I'm answering your questions about sex and consent in long-term relationships, the difference between sexual and emotional intimacy, and why the term gender diverse, yeah, shouldn't be an umbrella term for the LGBTQ community. I also share my interview with Dr. Charlotte Lopi, one of my mentors and the creator of the Healthy Sexuality course that I taught this semester at the University of Victoria. Both of us were interviewed with the University of Victoria's Consent Advocates and Relationship Educators program, all about consent and sex positivity. But first, today in sex. So for today in sex, I'm going to try something a little different. I found a voice recording of this article that I want to talk about, so we're going to do a little back and forth where I give you my perspective on what this article says. So here we go. Most Canadian Parents Comfortable with Sex Ed? Research Finds By Zasha Bielski Two new national surveys paint a rich portrait of how parents and students actually feel about sexual health education, what should be taught, and what is sorely missing. Published in the Canadian Journal of Human Sexuality, the studies counter a number of myths about attitudes towards sex ed in this country. First off, Canada is such a rock star when it comes to sex research. Literally, this article came out just a few days ago about how important it is to talk to students about what they want to learn from the sex ed in schools, and also, what are the parents' perspectives? Are they holding it back? Let's see what we found out about students in Canada. The student study found youth are keenly interested in school-based sex ed, but only when it's relevant to their lives. Youth wanted the positive aspects of sexuality emphasized alongside the risks, hoping for clearer guidance on what healthy intimate relationships actually entail. They wanted sex ed delivered by knowledgeable, unbiased teachers comfortable with the subject matter. Now, I wholeheartedly agree that absolutely sex ed should be taught by people who want to teach sex ed. Unfortunately, in Canada and in far too many places around the world, that is not the case. We are not given the skills and our teachers in particular are not given the time or the space to adequately address students' questions about sex ed and to be trained to address it in a way that doesn't pass on different shame, stigma, or bias. Honestly, this is why I was so excited to complete my sexual health educator training, but it opened my eyes to the fact that there is such a need for people to be going into schools and to offer this information because our teachers, they already are asked to do so much. They're not paid enough for the work that they do, so how are they supposed to address a topic that they have not been given the skills to adequately address? So yes, students are saying it, I am saying it. We need better sex ed for everyone, but we need to train people in order to actually do that. Okay, but now, what do the parents have to say about all this? The parental study found mothers and fathers may be more open-minded about sex ed than was previously assumed, particularly during Ontario's heated sex ed wars, when vocal conservative critics helped scrap modernized curriculums in 2018. The information we have now can reassure educators and administrators that negative parental reactions to sex ed reflect the views of a small percentage of parents, said lead author Jessica Wood, a research specialist at the Sex Information and Education Council of Canada, a national nonprofit organization that works to promote sexual and reproductive health. Most parents are supportive of extensive sex ed programming for their children. Now, this also gave me a lot of hope to think that, yeah, parents actually want their kids to know about their sexual selves and to be able to navigate that in a healthy way. 
The article does say mothers and fathers, which, as we know, there are a lot more people who are parents than just mothers or fathers. And I just want to say that it gives us a bit of space to think about how a very vocal minority, so folks who are sharing really conservative views about sexuality and how there shouldn't be sex ed in schools, that's not actually the majority of people. Most folks thought that sex ed should be taught in schools and that it should be comprehensive. So we're going to keep doing that and offering information because even if there is some pushback, we know that most people, they actually want this information because they recognize how important it is. Two of the sex ed subjects that have been most controversial, pleasure and gender identity, still garnered high levels of support from these parents, nearly 87% and nearly 90%, respectively. Now that's the last part of the article I'm going to play for you right now, but I find it so reassuring that parents are actually recognizing that we need to be talking about gender, we need to be really inclusive in our sex ed, but also that we need to be talking about pleasure. Yes, obviously it can be hard to have these conversations with people who we have raised, people who we are looking after, but knowing that conversations about pleasure this leads into talking about healthy relationships. What does that look like to openly communicate with someone and to advocate for our pleasure and what we want? So I found this article just so inspiring thinking about when there's so much other noise and shit that is happening in the world right now to think that students and parents, they are hungry for sex ed. And it is my job as a sexual health educator to try and bring that to them. So if you have any ideas of how to bring sex ed into schools, how to make it more accessible for folks from all different walks of life, I would love to hear your ideas. So please get in touch. Or if you want me to come and talk to a class that you know of, I am literally trained to do that. So let me know, send me a message to thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com and I would love to discuss it with you further. And now let's get to your calls. This one was called Sex in Long-Term Relationships. I was hoping you could speak more about consent and sex in a committed relationship. I feel like I'm sometimes only having sex because it seems like it's expected, and if I don't agree to it every time he initiates sex, I am somehow letting him down. I am consenting, I'm just not always in the mood when sex is initiated. This is a really great question, and I think so often we don't think about consent in long-term relationships. We only think about it in that first time that we are intimate with another person. But consent and the most important part of it is that it is ongoing and that it is mutual, that everyone involved in it is feeling really excited about what's about to happen. And we get more into my opinion on consent and Dr. Lopez in our interview, but there was one model that I wanted to share with you that I think is really helpful when we think about consent and also like sexual desire in long-term relationships. So Dr. Rosemary Basson, she argues that some people in long-term relationships, particularly folks with vulvas, they may not be motivated to engage in sexual activity and they might not have these experiences of spontaneous sexual desire very often. Rather, folks are motivated to engage in sexual activity to enhance the intimacy, the closeness, and the commitment with their partner, and really to enhance sometimes their sense of attractiveness or to share sexual pleasure. So folks begin a sexual activity in like a sexually neutral state, but they're receptive to sexual stimuli that will arouse them. And sometimes it can be hard when it comes to consent because if you're in a relationship where it is a sexual relationship, 
sometimes you're in that sexually neutral place where you're like, I'm not like really interested in sex, but I do, I like, I love you or I feel sexually attracted to you. But what happens over time is that we become used to people. And a lot of the time, our spontaneous sexual desire, that comes from the novelty, that comes from the new. So it's hard, right? It's hard when it comes to consent because sometimes we feel like we owe it to our partners. I'm using bunny ears here around owe because, of course, we don't. But I also want to normalize that sometimes we are in a sexually neutral space where we aren't actually feeling sexual desire until we start engaging in that sexual activity itself. Once we engage in the sexual activity, once it's started, then someone can become aroused. And this is particularly for folks with vulvas. So this leads them to experience sexual desire and enhance sexual arousal. And so according to Bassin, some people, they may begin um, sexual activity for intimacy reasons, such as you said, because you don't want to let your partner down. That's not a great reason to be starting sex, but for some people, it's a way to, it's a way to build intimacy with our partners and to continue to be sexual as something that builds on your relationship. So Bassin, she also acknowledges that even in long-term relationships, all folks can and do experience a spontaneous sexual desire outside of her intimacy model that may lead to sexual activity with their partner or to casual sex or self-stimulation. I've left this great article called What Bassin's Sexual Response Cycle Teaches Us About Sexuality. And it goes through that cycle that I've just been talking to you about, about that sexual neutrality, experiencing some sort of sexual stimuli. And the important thing here is within an appropriate context, one where you don't feel pressured, you don't feel coerced. And, you know, sometimes you're lying on the couch cuddling with your partner and then you start kissing, some deep kissing or feeling each other up. And before, maybe you weren't really into it as you were just lying there on the couch, maybe watching a show. But as you start to make out, then you can start feeling more sexually aroused. I think the most important part is to be really honest to our partners about what we want in these relationships. And it's okay to say no. It's more than okay. If you are not in the mood, if there are other reasons that you don't want to be having sex with your partner, then you should be able to tell them without feeling like you're going to let them down. Of course, if, if someone is really excited about having sex with someone and they've built up expectations around it and then they get rejected, that can be hurtful. But as long as we're communicating of being like, you know, this isn't a rejection of you or that I don't find you sexually attractive. It's just saying that right now I'm not really feeling it and maybe another time I will. So having that clear communication with your partner, especially in all relationships, but in committed relationships that you're talking about, caller, just making sure that you feel comfortable to let them know what's happening. And then also do a bit of thinking about Bassin's intimacy model. You know, maybe sometimes you aren't in the mood, you aren't feeling spontaneous sexual desire, but as you start kissing or you take a bath together or dance together, something like that that brings you physically together or feeling quite intimate, then maybe it can lead to feeling more sexual arousal when you do have sex with each other. Now, the next question is about sexual intimacy versus emotional intimacy. The caller says, I enjoy having sex and always want to have sex with this person, but I'm not sure where I stand in terms of if I have a strong emotional connection with this person. To be honest, I'm not sure if I am even physically attracted to him, though I do have a strong desire to initiate sex with this person. I think having sex with this person is fun, and is it the physical intimacy masking my lack of emotional intimacy? Since I'm really wondering what's going on. So caller, 
it's great that you're separating these out and it's totally normal if sexual intimacy and emotional intimacy are experienced separately. There's nothing wrong with you. That's absolutely fine. And really, it's not an issue if you feel sexual or physical intimacy with this person, but not emotional intimacy. That's absolutely fine. You are not broken in some way, or it's not masking your lack of emotional capacity to feel something for this person. It is absolutely normal to feel very sexually attracted to someone, but then actually be like, mm, emotionally, or maybe our personalities don't align very well. There are a lot of reasons that casual sex can happen, but this is a great example of that. As long as you are able to communicate effectively and everyone is consenting in what's happening in this sexual relationship that you're engaging in, then it's totally fine. I've also shared the link to a great article literally called Emotional Versus Sexual Intimacy, Why You Need to Know the Difference. To break it down, they basically say they are not the same, right? And sometimes, depending on the kind of relationship that we want, we need both. We need sexual and emotional intimacy. But it really depends what kind of relationship you're looking for. Sometimes it's emotional intimacy for having a deep, intimate friendship with someone, and there is no sexual intimacy that's there. Or it's all sexual intimacy. It's that sexual charge and energy, but there isn't actually a really strong emotional component as a part of it. They can work together. If you find both that work together, that's fantastic. But don't feel like you are wrong or broken or trying to mask the fact that you feel really sexually attracted to this person. And so therefore, in order to be a good person, you have to have emotional feelings for them too. No, that's totally BS. Don't worry. If you are enjoying it, if they are enjoying it, and it's consensual sex, keep doing it. And as long as, you know, sometimes people talk about getting the feels, make sure you're communicating effectively about where you're at emotionally and sexually. Let's take one more call. Hi, Dr. Tidy. Could you speak to what the term gender diverse means? The university I work for seems to be using this term interchangeably with two-spirit LGBTQ. And I'm finding this confusing because I didn't think that all of those subgroups would necessarily identify as gender diverse. I really don't know where to go to online for an authoritative source on this, so I thought you could help me out. Thanks. Caller, this is a really great point and really interesting thinking about gender diverse and the difference between LGBTQ plus folks and how a university and institutions in general, how they label folks, especially when it comes to funding or access to resources. You can see how conflating all of these into one like alphabet soup. No, that's not what we're wanting here. So in terms of gender diverse, I think you're so right that it shouldn't be used interchangeably with LGBTQ2S+, because it can confuse sexual orientation with gender identity. So gender diverse, it's similar in many ways to how queer can sometimes be used as an inclusive term for folks who don't identify as heterosexual. So it's a term that recognizes the spectrum of gender identity beyond woman and man, and it can include gender non-binary folks, agender folks, gender fluid, all of different folks along that gender spectrum. I've also shared an excellent resource from Action Canada called the Gender Galaxy, and it's super helpful in defining these terms. It allows you to explore it even beyond that spectrum to say that gender is something that we feel within ourselves and we express that, and our sexual orientation, that's something that is different and separate from it. So hopefully you can take this information back to your university, share this resource from Action Canada, and say, actually, we shouldn't just say gender diverse as an umbrella term, because 
as a bisexual woman, I'm not gender diverse. I'm a cisgender woman. I'm a part of the queer community, but I am not a part of a gender diverse community. So knowing the difference between our terms and knowing that language and knowledge, that's power. So it's really important to know how we're using it, and especially when it comes to folks wanting to access resources. Thank you so much for your question. Now, before we get into our interview, I want to share a brief review. Um, and this was titled New Favorite, and they gave the podcast five stars. And this is from Amy Act in Ireland. They say, I just recently stumbled across your podcast looking for something informative and still engaging about human sexuality, and it's an instant favorite. Thank you so much, Amy Act, and so glad to have people from all over the world listening to this podcast. And now it is time for my interview with Dr. Charlotte Lopi and the University of Victoria's Consent Advocates and Relationship Educators Program. So just a couple of brief notes before we get started. One of the students interviewing us, Natasha, told us before we started recording that there was construction happening outside of her apartment during the interview. In particular, a pile driver. So of course, a couple of hilarious jokes ensue talking about pile driving and how it being a fitting sound for an interview about sex. But that is what you are hearing occasionally in the background when she's speaking. You will also hear Charlotte's email notification go off a few times. Really, it's a wonderful conversation, and I hope you enjoy these ambient background noises that make it that much more realistic, shall we say. So here we go. All right, so we'll start off with a territory acknowledgement. Most of us are from the University of Victoria, so I'll start with the UVic land acknowledgement. So we acknowledge with respect the Lekwungen people on whose traditional territory the University of Victoria stands, and the Songhees, Esquimalt, and Osanish peoples whose historical relationships to the land continue to this day. For anybody watching or listening, I also want to make sure that um, you guys take the time to consider what land you are on. Uh, if you're not in Victoria, if you're in other places in Canada or the U.S. or around the world, um, just the people who have been on that land before you um, and just take the time to consider that. Yeah, so we'll move on into some, some introductions here. And if anyone wants to say something about a land acknowledgement before I do that, um, feel free to say something or else we'll move on. I'll pop in quickly just to acknowledge that I'm actually zooming in from Winnipeg. Um, also known as Treaty One Territory. So I wanna respectfully acknowledge that I live within the original lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota and Dene people and the homeland of the Métis Nation. Thanks, Natasha. Um, okay, so if either of you would like to jump in, just give us a brief background into your field or just your, maybe your educational background. If you're doing any research currently, I know you guys are both um, doctors and, of course, well off in your field. So I'll just get a quick introduction, whichever one of you guys wants to go first. Otherwise, I will probably pick one of you. Should we do age before beauty, Leah? And I'll go first since I'm old. And Charlotte, you know that. There you go. Yeah, hi, I'm Charlotte Lopi. I'm a professor in the School of Public Health and Social Policy. I'm uh, Mi'kmaq and French-Cadian from Nova Scotia. And so I've been a grateful visitor here on the lands of Lekwungen people for 12 years. Very grateful for the patience and friendships that those folks have shown to me and my family. 
Um, yeah, I've been teaching human sexuality here um, at UVic and before that at Dalhousie University since 1999. Uh, so uh, when there were no computers in the classroom. So yeah, um, that'll do, I guess, for uh, an introduction. So my name is Leah Tidy, and I'm a sessional instructor at in uh, public health and social policy. And I'm actually zooming into you right now from the unceded territories of the Stenimuk peoples. So here in, in Nanaimo, and I actually grew up here and didn't actually know the name of these people's lands until I was in my 20s. So that's something that I am really working on each day to learn more and to understand more and be really grateful for, for the space that my family has taken up on these lands for many, many generations. So yeah, um, as I said, my name is Leah Tidy. My pronouns are she and her. And I completed my PhD at UVic last year. Um, I was one of the first defending uh, over Zoom, which was quite an experience. Charlotte was there as one of my committee members. And my research focus is primarily working with youth and also older adults. So we can talk about sexuality at any um, stage in our life and using theater and arts-based methods to, to talk about sexuality because it can be awkward and it really, it doesn't have to be. And I feel very honored and very privileged to be teaching healthy sexuality this semester. This is my first time teaching this class. And so I have very large shoes to fill with, with Charlotte creating this course. And I'm having a lot of fun uh, teaching it, even though there's 300 students on Zoom. It's it's interesting, but we're I think we're having a really great semester so far. Awesome. Thank you guys. Yeah, and just one more question about maybe just if you want to talk, talk about your personal and your professional endeavors. Leah, you have a podcast that I believe you want to maybe want to talk about and introduce to our viewers. Sure, I'm happy to do it. For uh, folks who are watching right now and then people who are potentially listening on the podcast, uh, I host a podcast called The Love Doctor. And it started because I finished my PhD and we were in the midst of our kind of first lockdown with COVID-19. And here I was, a new doctor with not much to do. And I was like, you know, I have a microphone. Why not start talking to people in the field? And I've been very fortunate to talk with different sexual health educators and researchers from all across Canada to hear about the work they're doing and to just try and destigmatize conversations around sex. Charlotte, if you have anything else to say. Yeah, well, my personal life used to be full of sex. And now at 62, <laughs> not so much. Um, I still talk about it. Nobody just wants to do it with me anymore. So there's that. But yeah, no, I mean, outside of my teaching human sex and uh, research I do is not um, always specifically related to like sexuality in terms of practice, uh, but tons of research around, um, you know, uh, gender, um, HIV, STIs, mostly just around that, um, uh, the periphery of sort of, uh, rather than like, what kind of sex do you like type of stuff? All right, well, thank you guys for that introduction. I think I'll pass it on to Natasha here and she'll ask maybe some more specific questions about sex positivity and, and sexual health. All right, yeah, thanks, Martin. 
I'll do just a little quick intro about me. I realized I never actually did that. Um, so I'm Natasha, I'm a third year undergraduate student at UVic. I am Anishinaabe Métis on my mother's side and Scottish German on my father's side. Um, and I was really grateful to be an uninvited guest on the territories that UVic stands upon for a couple of years in the past. So moving toward sex positivity as kind of a huge term that's thrown around actually quite a bit. I'm wondering if you two have any kind of definition for that. I know that a lot of people hear it, maybe don't know what it means. Do you think that there's a definition for it? Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And whoever would like to go first, for sure. You want to go with you? Sure, I'll jump in. It's interesting. I'm actually uh, finishing my sexual health educator training right now through options for sexual health. And we had a whole two hour long discussion on what do we mean by sex positivity? And there's a room of 14 sex educators all being like, what do you mean by sex positivity? So the term itself is, is very broad. It can mean a lot of things to different people, but I, for myself and my own practice, what I try and when I talk about sex positivity, to me, it comes down to inclusivity. Are you making sure that you're talking about sexuality in a way that it acknowledges multiple different lived experiences and also acknowledges that sex that is consensual, that is validating, that is empowering, that is that is good sex. That's something we can feel positive about. Um, and it's not necessarily a certain act that is good sex. It's just talking about sexuality and our expression of that um, as something that is a positive experience of being a human being, whatever that means to you. But there's so much within that. And I think that's kind of exciting to the fact that you can kind of define sex positivity with what works for you in your life. But that, that real lens on inclusivity, I think is something that's really important for me. Yeah, so um, so I was joking about not having sex at 62, um, at which, you know, it's uh, one of those uh, one of those topics uh, that I think is relevant to the this notion of sex positivity in the sense that just in terms of what Leah was saying, uh, we often are not uh, we're we seem to be really comfortable illustrating sex talking about it in very superficial, titillating, humorous kind of ways. But when it comes to talking about it as a feature of human life, good, bad, or ugly, then people are not as comfortable. Then it becomes inappropriate, right? And so, again, just referencing my age uh, and the length of time I've been teaching this course, the notion of positivity, although it hasn't been like referred to as sex positivity over the last 25 years or so, um, is really about understanding sexuality as just even the term human sexuality or healthy sexuality as something that doesn't require a clinical focus or an academic focus or a deficit focus. So we don't have to be talking about STIs. We don't have to be talking about unintended pregnancies. We don't have to be talking about, you know, who, am I allowed to swear? Who fucks who and whether we like it or not, right? That is, um, that's the evolving conversation about sex positivity. It's about uh, recognizing 
not only to your point, the positive elements of sex, and, but just normalizing it to the point where people don't feel a sense of shame in responding to a question of how are you doing today uh, with, you know, my vulva is super itchy uh, and that not, mine isn't, it's fine. It's relatively good. Um, on a scale from one to 10, I'd say it's a three, but uh, in terms of, you know, relative itch. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that when you can, when I can respond to a, how are you doing today with a response like that in the same way it would be received as my elbows a little sore, you know, I was gardening, then we will, to me, we'll have reached a, a level of sex positivity, whatever you want to call that or what, however you want to understand it, then to me, we've reached that level where I think, where I think we're, we're really released from that sense of shame around sex. Sorry for referring to my own vulva, but we are going to talk about positive sex, right? Exactly. That's exactly what this conversation is for. And I think we all enjoyed hearing about your vulva. Thank um, you. <laughs> so someone has to. Someone has to. Um, speaking of education, I know you mentioned um, the what people might have already learned about STIs. There seems to be a lot of focus in sex ed with people growing up um, on deficit. And for people who kind of just feel like that little itch of, oh, I feel like I want to learn more about that. It can be really overwhelming, right? There's so much online. It can be really hard to figure out where to start. Do you have any tips for people who feel like they maybe want to relearn or unlearn some stuff they know about sex education or who want to start conversations with the people that they know in their life? I'll defer to Leah because you've done a lot more sex education outside the classroom than I have. Mm. I was hoping you go first and you'd oh, okay. some wisdom and then I could riff off of that, but it's, it's oh, okay. okay. No, yeah, I mean, I guess the only thing I can say is that, you know, the internet, while I, there was no such thing as the internet when I was even a young adult. Um, the, 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 the great thing about the internet is that there's tons of resources out there. The problem with the internet is that there's tons of resources. And so, you know, even saying, oh, you have to find a credible source of information. Well, how would someone know what a credible source of information is, right? And so in that respect, I would say, look to a local organization that does sex, uh, I was going to say sex work, but that's something, I mean, you could learn a lot from an organization that does sex work as well. Um, but I would say like the Island Sexual Health Program or an organization that makes, you know, it's living or, or it's, it, it, that's what it does. And so I'll, I'll just say that uh, and then find out from them what resources they, they would recommend rather than searching for all the garbage on the internet right what do you think Leah yeah I think that's a great suggestion of starting at an organization because as someone who has googled you know what's wrong with my vulva is this what's on and I get people asking me this every week on the podcast different questions about you know thinking that their bodies aren't normal in some way well, if you go on Google or WebMD, you're, you're going to realize that you're dying from something you didn't know existed, right? That's what you'll find out. Whereas, yeah, you start at the Island Sexual Health Society, options for sexual health, 
they are dedicated to sharing resources with folks that are honest, that are research-based, and that, that actually are sex positive, that a lot of places are gender affirming and are aware of the multitudes of different experiences that people have. And that's kind of a part of, I think it's a lot of what Charlotte and I also do is we direct people to resources to help them because we can only hold so much knowledge because there's so much out there. And so, and there's so much nuance within our experiences that we need to say, okay, well, I may not know the answer, but I know that this resource will have that for you. Like the Scarletine website always is a wonderful resource, but it's, it's helping people with their media literacy as well. That I think is, is a part of it is that critical thinking. If we go to university for nothing else, I hope that that critical thinking is the thing that we engage with and that we learn how to differentiate between what information is honest is correct or what information is trying to sell us something or trying to tell us that something is wrong with our bodies and we need to fix it in some ways. So yeah, start with that organization. And then even talking to, I mean, shameless plug for the healthy sexuality course. I'm biased obviously because I'm teaching it. I took this class when I was in my second year at UVic and it, it really did change my life. And that's why I have the career that I have now. And it's, and it's thanks to Charlotte and the content that she teaches in that class. And so moving from that, it, it just opened my eyes to the amount of information out there that I could access and I could feel empowered and knowing that about my body and my expression of sexuality. Yay. Well, thank you too. I think that that was really comprehensive and a great first step for those who are um, not sure where to start. So thinking more about people like the people in this room who are very sex positive and talk a lot about sex, how do these types of people who may feel like maybe sometimes they make people a little uncomfortable, um, maybe they do it a lot, um, how can they ensure that they're being inclusive and uh, respecting where people are at and um, making sure that they're presenting sex positivity in a way that other people might be more interested in learning more about in the future instead of being turned off from it? Um, so any kind of practical advice, big picture advice, open to anything. Yeah, well, I like I don't respond to people in that way now unless I know them well. Um, so there's that, right? You, you do have to know your the group to which you're you're you know you're talking. Now, in in healthy sexuality, I'm sure Leah does this, and I have always done it. I mean, that's the place where you can be open, and so I feel like that's such an amazing space uh, because we have 300 plus students in that class every term. And, and so part of our job is to create an environment that is safe and that is inclusive and that is normalizing sexuality in its broadest terms, right? And so for me and, and the, the feedback that I've always received from students or from folks that I talk to in my like everyday life, even if I'm introducing topics around sexuality just in the context of other conversations. Um, the feedback that I've received is that when you're comfortable, it makes other people more comfortable, right? When you're not trying to like bludgeon them over the head with your own, you know, sexual autonomy or sexual 
authenticity, right? When you're not lording that over people or coming across like you have a gold standard of, you know, sexual authenticity in mind, then I think it's really just about normalizing it so that people, and to some degree, and this is a, this is one of those elements of, I'm going to call it broadly Western culture where people aren't as comfortable, but it's about being a little bit, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, vulnerable. But again, that's a, you know, in, in, in teaching human sex, I know that Leah has seen it in a classroom and I'm sure she does the same way or maybe not exactly the same way, but I feel like I can't expect students or anyone to be vulnerable because you know, the truth is we still do stigmatize sex, sexuality broadly and then very specifically in terms of different, like, you know, different groups of folks. But demonstrating vulnerability helps other people feel less vulnerable, right? When there is some imbalance of power and, and knowledge is power, right? When you're the person holding more, more knowledge, for you to demonstrate humility and some vulnerability, it really does open up a conversation that people are not going to feel judged and they're not going to feel humiliated, which is a real potential, right? When we're talking about particularly sexual authenticity, like what your authentic sexuality is, because it's so diverse and we have such a narrow, you know, sense of what sexual etiquette should be, right? I don't know. How do you feel about it, Leah? Yeah, it's it's something that you model so well, Charlotte, that comfortability and that normalizing. Uh, but I will say that it's taken me a long time to be the person who can model being comfortable talking about sexuality. It, it, it takes a long time because we have a lot of like shame and things to, to unpack. But if in terms of like practical advice, when you're getting to know people or you want to demonstrate that you're someone who is inclusive. I mean, the first thing is to, is to listen to other people's stories. As Charlotte was saying, you don't want to bludgeon them with information. Instead, it's, it's meeting people where they're at. And so sometimes if I'm teaching, you know, I'll introduce myself by saying, hi, I'm Leah. I'm a white settler, cisgender, bisexual woman. And then, and then other times I won't have all of those words attached to my name because what does that mean for the audience that I'm talking to? Like, do they know what I mean when I say cisgender? Do they know what I mean when I say bisexual? It's trying to, the point when I'm thinking about inclusive language is only inclusive if people know what you mean by it and they don't feel othered by it or they feel that you're talking down to them. So it's, it's just, yeah, like meeting people where they're at and also, as, as Charlotte was saying, knowledge is power. The more that you can learn about sexual expression, the more you can learn about what healthy sexuality means to you um, beyond a clinical sense, beyond, you know, being not having an STI beyond those things, then you're just demonstrating that you're someone who can be uh, trusted. You're someone who can be honest, like talking about sexual experiences, and you can be a good resource for other people. But don't feel like you all need to become sexual health educators and know that, that it, it is a lifelong journey, just as sexuality is a lifelong journey. Learning about sexuality and, and being someone who can model that takes a lot, of, a lot of time, a lot of effort. And one of the reasons, sorry, I'm just going to interject, but one of the reasons that people take so long is because we don't start out that way. We're raised in sexual shame. Most of us are, right? So it takes us like 
you know, after the first 20 years of like really shitty, like socialization around sex, then we have to kind of like get over all that and try to relearn. And one of the other things that I find in terms of being like authentic and humble is not to portray healthy or positive sexuality as problem-free sexuality, because if we're normalizing sex, then, and sex is, is like any other dimension of human life. Well, it's fraught with challenges and fuck ups and like literally, right, you know, bad experiences and like embarrassing stuff. And, you know, all of that is part of the human experience. And so embracing those elements of sexuality are just as important as embracing all of the like, oh, it can be really amazing and all of that, right? We have to embrace the whole messy thing, right? Messy can be good. <laughs> well, thank you too for sharing. I really appreciate those answers. I think we touched on a lot of really big topics and managed to kind of cohesively bring together some usable information. Um, so with that, I'm going to pass it on to Martin, who has just a quick question about consent. Yeah, thank you guys for your insight on these topics. And like Natasha said, I'll, I'll move it into consent and just generally relationships. So UVic has a, a campaign called Let's Get Consensual. And so the program is focused on talking about and normalizing consent, like specifically in the UVic community and into the just general life in, your, in the general community as well. Do you guys have any advice on how to talk about consent and make it accessible to other people and just generalize, generally destigmatize it for those who are maybe not sure what consent is about and what it means? I'll, uh, I'll, I'll start her off. I think when it comes to consent, we get very stuck in thinking that it only relates to sex. Consent is something and our personal boundaries is something that we should work on in all aspects of our lives. You know, it's, it's something that, you know, communicating like, can I give you a hug? And I think with COVID-19, we're realizing even more that we have to talk about our boundaries. Like who's in your bubble? I'm in this bubble. I saw this person. Are you okay with that? Like just being able to have those conversations. It's, of course, in terms of a sexual context, it's so important, but practicing consent in a way that I like to think about it is enthusiastic agreement, is if you're practicing that, you can practice that in all aspects of your life. If your mind and your body, if all of those things are in line saying, Charlotte swears much better than I do, but if you're, all of them are saying, fuck yes, then that's great, then you should be doing that thing. But if your mind is saying, oh, I don't know how I feel about that, or your body, your gut is telling you something that, oh, I don't know if I'm quite comfortable with this. It's, it's giving you an indication that maybe you need to take a step back to think about what's happening in the situation and then communicate with each other because it's that communication piece that's so lost and thinking about communication as more than what we say with our words because there are many of us who communicate with our bodies. There are lots of nonverbal folks who if we just go down to yes means yes, or no means no, that's where we get into sticky situations because obviously there's so much more nuance within that. So again, it comes back to that active and deep listening. Like if you're in um, a sexual encounter with someone, are you listening with them with what they're saying with their words? Are you listening to what they're telling you with their body? And are you also listening to what's happening within yourself, right? So if it comes from 
a place of empowerment, a place of pleasure, then consent is easy because you're saying, yes, I do want to do this thing. This is so exciting. What a adventure or journey that we're on together yourself with multiple people, what, what that would look like. So yeah, it, it's, it's difficult because as Charlotte was saying, so much of us are taught shame and, and so many of us are, are taught not to hold our boundaries or that some people's boundaries are more important than others. And so we have a lot of unlearning and unpacking to do to honor each of us in, in, our, in what we're comfortable with and how we want to engage with other people. So it's a huge topic, but it's also easy if you bring it down to like, yeah, am I saying like, yes, like a whole body, yes to what's happening. Charlotte, what do you think? Yeah, I, th- I agree with everything you said. And, um, and I'm going to come at it from the, from the other side of the of someone who is like wondering, like, how do I know when, you know, someone has consented to something, right? And so I think what you're saying, though, Leah, is so important, because we're not generally, like, we're socialized to seek consent in many different, like, elements of our lives, right? Like, I'm not going to walk into your house without, unless we're like super good friends or family, I'm not going to just go to my neighbors and walk in their house. I'm going to knock on the door, ask them, is it okay if I come in, wait for to be invited in. Like there's all kinds of ways that we learned about consent, but we don't talk about it again. We're not socialized. We're not, when I say socialized, I mean like as soon as you can talk or, you know, understand language, then you're you know learning about this, right? We don't do that around sexuality. And so what happens is folks are either not sure and then they don't even know how to ask. And so, you know, the, the example that I often use in class is, you know, if I approach you and ask you for five bucks, and you, you have the five bucks, but I'm not very trustworthy, or you don't know me that well, and you're not really sure whether you want to lend me this five dollars, and I'm kind of coercing you a little bit, uh, we're friends, you know, I'm good for it, you gave me money before, I paid you back, right, like there's a coercive element to it, if you kind of like okay, here, I don't want to do this, but here, give it to me. Well, I've, what the the term is acquiescence, right? It means I've, I've allowed you to take the money, but I didn't really give you the money, right? That's not really consent. If I'm in the middle of handing you the five bucks, we both have our hand on it. And I say, I changed my mind. You know, I got to take the bus. I don't know what the bus costs, but I got to take the bus later. If you take that $5 out of my hand, I think we can all agree. You've just stolen money from me. Like now you're a thief, right? No one argues about that. But when we get our pants down and someone changes their mind, it's like, well, you had your pants down. So you pretty much gave it to them, right? So then it becomes all of a sudden very murky. So for me, people, when people have a question about consent, whether it's Full and active, like you're saying, Leo, not acquiescence, because that's coercion and coercion doesn't equal consent. But if you if you can say to yourself, like, how would this look in another context? Like, how would this look if it was an exchange of money or if I was asking this person to I think there's another example they use about drinking tea. Am I going to like pour it down their throat if they don't want it? No. So those of us that are seeking consent, right? And people say, oh, it's so dorky. I say, it doesn't have to be dorky. And besides, dorky can be good, right? Dorky can be funny. 
dorky can be, you know, entertaining. And so if you have to be dorky about it, well, then I say better to be dorky than to be, you know, sexually assaulting people, right? My only note on that, Charlotte, too, is like dorky can be sexy too, right? I mean, that, I mean, that's kind of how I operate. I'm like, I'm a huge and dorky is amazing. It's so funny. Yeah. There's nothing funnier than an awkward moment. You won't forget it. Even if the sex is shitty, you'll still remember the awkward beginning, the awkward consent. Anything else, Martin? I know that was everything. You guys answered our second question, which was about um, bringing consent into everyday relationships and touching on like about setting boundaries within relationships and not just romantic ones within friends and family and all of that. So I think you guys covered that. Awesome. So yeah, everyone here at the care team, Natasha and uh, Tiffany, and those of us who are not actually present today, we would really like to thank you guys for coming out today and participating this in this and taking the time out of your days to, to talk to us about health and sexuality and consent and relationships. And yes, if you guys have anything else you would like to say about your podcast or about the health and sexuality class, feel free. I think the the only thing I want to add, not about the podcast, I won't shamelessly, <laughs> but um, in terms of healthy sexuality, if people are considering taking it, it is a, it's not just like a course that's helpful in terms of university. My partner and now husband, when we first started dating, I said, there's two classes I need you to take before, before this is serious. I need you to take healthy sexuality. I need you to take a gender studies class. You take these two, we're set. And that has paid off immensely in terms of our overall communication and health. And I won't tell you too much about our sex life, but in general, it is insanely helpful to just be a better human being. You take healthy sexuality to just be less shitty. And I just think it's helpful in terms of who, whatever your career is, whatever you're hoping to get out of university, healthy sexuality is a really important course that we need more, Charlotte. I want more classes about sexuality at UVic. Yes. Let's take it on the road. Yes, please. <laughs> Can you push me in a little cart? That would be fun. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> I'd say that's probably it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you again. That was lovely. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Love Doctor podcast. On the next episode, I'm talking to Levi about some bi-wife energy and how to be a good ally, especially as a hetero guy. As always, if you have a question for the show, send me a voice memo to thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com or send me a voice message right on Instagram at dr.leatidy. I want to hear your questions and your voice on the podcast, so please don't hesitate to get in touch. And even if you don't have a question, you can check me out on Instagram or Twitter. And if you like what you're hearing, hey, leave a review, share it with your friends, and let me know what you thought of this episode. Until then, folks, stay healthy, stay safe, stay consensual.